Hello, friend. You've stumbled upon the Season 1 archive for On The Bubble Podcast with me, Josh Liston. This episode you're listening to today was recorded sometime between mid-2015 and early 2019. And just so you know, Season 2 of the show is coming on Gen 8, 2020. The first episode will drop on Gen 8, 2020, Melbourne, Australia time. So that should be the day before if you're in North America. We're looking to make the show more fun, more energetic, a little bit less monotone for me, a bit more like this kind of vibe, and yeah, it should be pretty awesome. So thank you for checking out today's episode. I'm really proud of all the stuff we did on On The Bubble Podcast in the early days, which is kind of now wrapped up in season one, and pretty excited about where it's going for season two. So thanks once again, folks, onthebubblepodcast.com to get season two, to hear all of the episodes from season one, including this one today, if you want to share it with somebody or whatever. And I'll leave you with this crucial piece of life advice. So long, and thanks for all the fish. And their feelings about what the fans did and how that was, how that affected their life. And it's an incredible thing to have fans rise up when you're feeling like a failure to know that you are not in the eyes of, you know, thousands, tens of thousands of people when they're saying your show isn't good enough to be on the air. You know, that's the feeling you have. No, regardless, if you think, wow, creatively, I thought we we're onto something special here. And then you're, you're going to leave the air. And then this happens. It was so easy for me to go out and get interviews because this was the greatest feeling they ever had in their professional careers. So I'm here with Michael Sparaga, who is the director of the new fan campaign documentary, United We Fan. And I'm pretty excited to have Michael on the show today. I know this is a little bit unusual for On The Bubble Podcast to have an interview, but there really hasn't been anything else to come out in the entire universe that's maybe as appropriate to this particular podcast as Michael's new documentary. So just before we get going today, I wanted to say one thing because I'm going to attempt to pull myself out of the rest of today's conversation as much as possible. When I first saw United We Fan, I thought to myself, wait, there's someone else in the world that's just as interested or maybe even more interested in the craziness of fan campaigns than me. It just made me think this thing's actually real. It's not just some weird thing that I fell upon. It's actually a thing around the globe and other people care. So with that little preamble, Michael, did you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to be creating United We Fan? That was uh, a great intro. Thanks for that. Uh, yeah, I I grew up loving TV. I just grew up sitting cross-legged in front of TV. I've always loved it. And uh, when I was actually uh, 13 years old, I wrote a, a letter uh, on behalf of a show that I really loved called Crime Story, which was, uh, I love, love to see you do uh, an episode on Crime Story. It was Michael Mann's other show, the one that wasn't Miami Vice. And it was serialized. And I, I didn't even know really what the difference was between, you know, a procedural uh, and a, a serialized show at that point. I just knew that I had to watch every week because what came the week before was leading into this week. And that was really exciting. And it was just this one relentless pursuit of a, a police detective trying to catch uh, a criminal. And over time, I've recognized how influential that show was, that it, I, I wasn't, it wasn't odd for me to love that show. That show is 
really loved it. I bumped into a lot of people. I started to read about how that influenced Sopranos, how it just was this it was a special sort of show and, and it introduced a lot of talent. You look at the guest lists on that show and they were huge. So it wasn't something that I was an oddball person for loving. It was just the start of where TV really was going. And I wrote a letter at age 13 uh, to NBC begging them to bring it back because it ended on this incredible cliffhanger, literally a nuclear bomb going off in the desert, <laughs> you know, like I was like, Oh no, what happens? And so uh, my mom's like, you know, if you want to, you know, get more of it, write write a letter. So I did. I in the middle of the summer, I wrote a letter, which you know, I didn't necessarily love writing uh, when it wasn't school time. And a show came back. I'm sure my letter had nothing to do with it, but it that stuck with me. That idea that maybe a lot of people wrote letters like this and they brought the show back, uh, and fully unaware that this ever happened in the history before. I was like. I sure I've heard of the show Star Trek, but I bet that wasn't safe by anything like this, you know, yeah. <laughs> uh, and it wasn't until years later watching uh, other campaigns happen and seeing articles for other campaigns thinking like, oh, OK, this happens a lot. And it just oh, it just always stuck with me. And it's something I've been wanting to to dig deeper into for for quite a few years. I was actually going to ask you if there was a particular show which you've answered that kind of made you aware of fan campaigns. I know, I know for me. And I've explained this before on the podcast. The reason I started with Sarah Connor Chronicles was because that was the first place that I even discovered that mm-hmm. fan campaigns were a real thing. And that was quite an involved fan campaign. Very. And I guess the second thing is how did the interest in fan campaigns in general and TV coalesce with directing? Did you just stumble upon the two things and they kind of work together? Well, really, this I wasn't going to have anything to do with directing anything. I was a, a screenwriter of uh, dramatic uh, work, and I'm not dramatic, comedic, but just scripted narrative work. And uh, I got into directing a, a, a few years ago. A, uh, a friend who owned a restaurant in New York uh, was doing this uh, very strange thing, putting up a, a new wallpaper in his restaurant. And that wallpaper was copying the very famous wallpaper from another restaurant that I had actually seen in movies before. I remembered it from a Woody Allen film. I remembered it uh, from the Royal Tenenbaums. And he was getting some flack for putting up wallpaper. And I thought, what a weird store only in New York story that wallpaper is even an issue for anybody. And I I went to New York. Within a week of hearing the story, I was on the ground in New York filming the story. And it ended up, uh, after filming it for a couple of years, becoming a feature film called The Missing Ingredient. And that did uh, really well for me. I mean, it, it got into uh, some really great festivals. And it's uh, it's on Netflix in the U.S. right now. And I really didn't know what I was doing. I mean, I really just was taking the bus overnight from Toronto, where I'm from in Canada, to New York. Uh, every couple of months and just continuing and following the story. And it was sort of fascinating to compare this old institution of New York that didn't exist anymore that had this wallpaper with this sort of newer but still well-liked restaurant that was desperate for success in a way and tried this wallpaper. And just the feeling that confidence of over, over a couple of years got me feeling like, wow, you know, this idea about fan campaigns that I had – I think I would love that to be my next film. And it just happened very quickly from finishing when I was actually on the festival circuit for with the missing ingredient, plotting and planning to go right into a movie called On the Bubble. Believe it or not, it was called On the Bubble. Not Yeah, that's still still stunning today. <laughs> it, it just is so obvious. 
it's such an obvious title. It's like things are on the bubble. I've known that term for a long time. And I was like, it just seemed right. And I had stumbled upon your podcast and I thought, oh, this is just great. And so it just, it just happened. I knew eventually I would have to come up with another, another title knowing there was a podcast out there that was already called this. Uh, so it just, we, I was in production on one while fit rule wrapping up the other. Uh, so yeah, it was kind of organic getting into directing it, but I've got that sort of du- documentary directing bug now. And I just would want that to keep going. That's an awesome story. And I honestly, I think that it probably would have helped me a lot more if it was called on the bubble. Maybe not so much you. <laughs> so, yeah, it's a great title. One thing, yeah, one thing, and this is a fortuitous, I guess. I have a Canadian on the show. What is it about Canadian TV culture that makes the fan community so dedicated to shows? Because I'm not sure whether I mean you would obviously be much more of an expert on this now than me, but the culture itself. It seems to be a very small cluster of Canadian fans of a lot of shows that drive a lot of the initial action in these campaigns. Is that something you've even noticed or Mm -hmm. is it just because I have a soft spot for Canadian TV? You probably have a more soft spot for Canadian TV than most Canadians, (laughs) which is is good. You know, it's it's a very strange thing to be uh, a Canadian uh, filmmaker. We're... In our own country, no word of a lie, in our own country, we're only 1% of our own box office. That's 1%. And that's incredible. I mean, when you think about it, that's really just essentially family and friends. You know, like that's not much more than that. And it's it's hard to produce material. Essentially, we have like sort of one hit, like a goon or away from her or something. Uh, and you take that one hit out of that year and that number even drops further and it's just been really hard to be next to a content creating monster right you know right below us that spreads that content all over but we also get that on the airwaves we get it from everywhere because we're, we're I mean, most of our population lives right alongside the border with the u.s so it's uh it's something that's it, as somebody starting out this business thinking, can we even make the movies we want to make here? Um, but as it comes down to the way we absorb content is for the most part, us content. So we usually based on just population about 10%, we are 10% of the U S and usually if you look at a, a television show or a movie, we're about 10% of its box office or viewership. Strangely, when it comes to sci-fi and culty things, we're a little higher. We're about 13 to 15%. And I'm not right. quite sure why. And so you, what you're noticing is, is true. We, we tend to really love the sort of shows that would draw um, a more cult or specialized audience. And I certainly growing up was that way. And my friends were that way. So I, I, it's something that it's uh, it, only over time and looking at statistics and seeing that, be like, oh, okay, so I wasn't crazy. Uh, you know, we do like these things a little bit more. Is there also maybe a tendency to produce shows that have a slightly more cult orientation? Because I know I've been watching uh, Dark Matters. Yeah, Dark, Dark Matter, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Before that, the only Canadian show I'd ever loved is probably something most Canadians don't love, and that's Republic of Doyle. <laughs> and that's mostly because that place in Newfoundland just seems like such a magical part of the world that I got sucked in. But yeah, I'm discovering there's a lot of really genre kind of Canadian stuff coming out, which is cool. Well, we get this opportunity because we don't really have the sort of market to handle making 22 to 24 
episodes. Like we don't have our networks don't order anything like that. It's closer to almost British standards, you know, the six to 12 uh, episode order, which lets people who make stuff make it almost like the way they make movies. You don't if you're making something that's 22 to 24 episodes, you start to air where you're still in production and how audience responds and how the network responds to what they're seeing changes the, you know, the back uh, of your order. Uh, potentially to not getting a back order, but if it's doing well enough that it gets the back order, you'll start to feel the influence of notes on the show. So the show changes. So you that, that can be good and it can be bad, but here it's more like making movies because it's completely finished, goes to air, and is on television and you're while well, you're in hiatus. So in a way, you can get more, in some ways, uh, that's good because you get more of a vision. Uh, on the screen of the people that are trying to make it uh, with a little less influence, you know, um, which is not the case when people are live tweeting along with a show that still have 12 more episodes in production. That's a really interesting point. And I guess that would mean, depending on, if we generalize that, depending on a show's production style, there's probably a difference between a show being on the bubble during a season where there's still a chance to rectify, take the notes, reject the notes, etc., and also yep. rally the cast and crew and fans versus a show that maybe has completed its first season and now is in limbo. Is that something that fed into the documentary? And can you talk about maybe how the scheduling of shows affects how things are on or off the bubble, so to speak? Or if that's even a question, I'm not sure you can tell me. No, absolutely. I mean, how you schedule a show. I mean, there's, I love when people talk about, you know, the Friday night death slot. You never want to be on the Friday nights when people yeah. are out. Um, a lot of the time, it's, it, that's what the fight is over. We cover it in uh, the uh, campaign that Quantum Leap had. And it, it wasn't to save the show. It was just to get it moved back from the, where they, it got moved from Wednesday to Friday. And then got the fans got all up in arms because, you know, a lot of the fans are 18 to 35. And so they're out on Friday nights. And that wasn't a PVR time. That wasn't uh, a streaming time. So you couldn't catch up on it. So the, the fans really fought because they knew it needed to keep good ratings to get it back to Wednesday. And you saw that a lot. We saw a lot of campaigns were about moving shows back to their regular time slots to keep them competitive. And it's very strange the way networks do it. That's, that's something that always comes up when talking to showrunners. It's just, we, we do person of interest. And one of the problems with person of interest was it was moved on them. They had a good spot, a good time, good audience, and it was moved. And I could go through all the shows, and that was a fight for a lot of the shows, which is where they're scheduled. It's like, why did you put us there? Let us build a, an audience and then move us to someplace else where people can't find us. I knew when I was researching the show Grimm that it was a bit of an outlier in the fact that it actually managed to survive that Friday time slot, mm -hmm. that the actual scheduling on certain days of the week is really important. Because I can speak as an Australian, take a show like Sarah Connor Chronicles. To me, I'm such a fan of that show that I think it is a beautiful creation. Yep. But I saw the entire thing in one continuous stream on DVD at the time. And to me, it's impossible to see just when you're watching the product that there's anything but the product. You don't actually know anything about the scheduling and whether it was moved from Monday to Friday night and then whether people tried to move it back. Yeah. <laughs> you don't see any of that. So it becomes even more confusing as to how a beautiful thing can't be left on the air or can't make it. Yeah. So. I mean, you probably get a lot more of the content straight away and you may be more aware of that, but 
Did you speak to anyone outside of the US about that same subject of how they receive content and how that affects people? No, I mean, we didn't really, really concentrate it on, for the most part, the campaigns. They're all the, the bigger US shows or cult shows uh, that were sort of dealt with in the documentary. And we kept to the the original broadcast and whether or not they're going to be kept on the air, uh, either by a network or a, a smaller cable network. Now, of course, it's streaming where none of that really matters. I mean, and that was that was a very, very big discussion. We were speaking at one point in the in an interview process with Jason Kadams, who you know did Friday Night Lights, which had a fan campaign. He uh, did Roswell, which had a fan campaign. He had a show earlier that had a fan. He's like, if he's he's like, if you want to talk to somebody who's constantly having his fans fight for a show, he's like, you've come to the right place. But yes. he has a Hulu show now, and that's very different. I mean, very, he's like, I, it's a very strange thing to not have a weekly consensus on your success. You know, it's not you and they miss it. And there are people, I definitely have spoken, uh, to people, uh, the other showrunners, and they're like, I, I would miss that gamble. Part of being in this business is constantly gambling with whether or not anybody's going to like anything you ever do ever. And, and to not have that be something that, is a concern that essentially you just get like a yes or no, you're coming back and nobody ever tells you how your show is doing. And that that's kind of strange too. It was strange for me on my last film uh, sell, selling that to Netflix. And then I, I don't know how many people have watched my, my film. I don't honestly know if 50 people have watched it, 500 people, 50,000, 500,000. It's strange not to know yet my film before that, it airs here in, in Canada, I can actually just look up the ratings and be like, hey, interesting. You know, 75,000 people watched my movie yesterday. That's crazy. If it's, you kind of like that feeling. And to not have any sense of that takes out a little bit of what this whole business has always been about from the very second this business ever existed is gone. Just fascinating that you brought up what I guess is feedback for the people creating shows. Mm -hmm. I know with Shannara Chronicles. The first season was maligned, I guess, for being a little bit too kiddie. And they thought if we move it away from MTV and make it darker and put it on Spike, a network that maybe where they can get away with more adult content, it will work. But if you actually read the sort of Shannara or any of the source material based on Elstones, actually not an entirely adult product. It's high fantasy. Mm -hmm. So. Yep. And I'm not sure if you've actually seen the second season or even if you've seen the show, but they mixed a lot of strange timelines together and picked characters from all over the Shannara mythology and lumped them into that second season, probably thinking we're trying to re-engage the reading audience. But what they did was they made a season that was just basically inconsistent and all over the place. And for people like me who had read the books, it seemed like they'd lost their way a little bit, but they'd already made all 10 episodes. It's amazing how often that happened, how often that notes from a network, uh, again, going back to Roswell, Jason Kadams was told, people want more sci-fi. We want this to be more sci-fi. And that isn't what people wanted. People wanted it to be just what it was, which was like Dawson's Creek uh, with aliens, you know, and they wanted the relationship stuff. And so it went more sci-fi. And then, of course, the core fans were like, why is this person doing this? You know, and that happens a lot where the, they misread the core fans, but the core fans aren't enough for the network numbers wise to keep it on the air. So person of interest, another example of a show that in its second season decided to become serialized. It was, uh, you know, P person of interest essentially could be called POI because they 
on CBS, they like things like NCIS, CSI. They really like acronym shows <laughs> and everything wraps up in an hour. But they went to this deeper mythology. I mean, you know, uh, Jonathan Nolan making person of interest and came from making the Dark Knight you know, trilogy with his brother. He likes serialized and he went down that route and pushed everybody down that route. That's when you got the fans, very strong core group of fans uh, and some it lost some numbers. And then CBS saw that the numbers were lost and then started to move the show around and it lost a little bit more. But never, never those numbers never like really plummeted. But the core that was still watching it absolutely loved it. And so the network, though, says they don't really care if the core group loves it. They don't they want 20 million eyes. And it doesn't matter if it's 20 million different eyes every single week. They just want 20 million eyes so they can go to the advertisers and say that's how many people watches it. But that's changing. That's truly changing. I think you're starting to see a big change in what numbers are needed on a weekly basis. And, you know, today uh, we saw the cancellation of Ash versus Evil Dead after three seasons on Stars. But those numbers are so low. I mean, we're talking 177,000 people, but it didn't need to be 20 or 30 times that to maintain the show. That was just too low for them. And with the numbers that even Person of Interest was burned off, I mean, the last season of Person of Interest was burned off by the network in the summer. But even being burned off with two episodes a week, it was averaging around 7 million viewers. Most networks would kill for 7 million viewers, you know, really would. Wow. So it's just it's constantly changing. It's constantly changing. And they can't keep up with it. They don't know how many eyeballs have to be on it. What they do want now that's very, very important to them is what's called owning both sides. They want, if CBS is going to air something, CBS wants to make the thing they're airing because otherwise they only get the first run broadcast advertising revenue. That's it. That's, that's, that has to fund it because Warner Brothers, who is making person of interest and is selling person of interest around the world is making all the money on the international sales. And CBS would rather have a show like Elementary, which is still on air, with lesser numbers than Person of Interest, because they get all the money from selling Elementary all around the world besides that first-run advertising revenue. So that was a real eye-opening thing for me to understand. And you started to see all the networks are just go, sort of going down that route. And I think the deal with to get Timeless back on air that they're really not discussing was the fact that the producers behind Timeless, beyond the fact that the fans rose up and said, we want more, the producers came back to the table, all likely, and said, we will give you a portion of our international sales. So it made sense to keep that on the air for them financially. Just to extrapolate that out a little bit, the effect of these big streaming companies that are producing in-house content and owning it from day one, that's basically the networks are trying to replicate that same model so they have front to back kind of ownership yep. but they're also they're trying to do it on the back of potential advertising revenue more so than subscription revenue so it's yep. sli- it's a slightly different model trying to fund the same setup that's yeah that's good luck to them i guess on that there's <laughs> only going to be so many producers that are going to want to give up their ip completely just to try and get a show back on the air i mean i'm not sure how many Yep. People would do that. So <laughs> uh, Another thing that's interesting is you're seeing the networks get into trying to be streaming services. Uh, you know, we sort of CBS All Access is they're, you know, they're trying to be 
uh, uh, Netflix and compete with just straight streaming uh, and giving content creators uh, that sort of uh, freedom as well to just here's a full do a full season, you know, don't have to deliver 22 you will we'll do shorter seasons. And so that happens there. And what I think is so fascinating is Star Trek is a show that if there was never the third season back in 1960, you know, when they, did, if they didn't fight for it in 67, there isn't that third season. And then Star Trek doesn't go into syndication and doesn't become what Star Trek is in the world, which is, you know, probably the biggest TV show of all time. And I know people will be like, oh, no, it's the, you know, the Honeymooners or it's I Love Lucy. You know, they, they'll say it's something else, but it's like, yeah, I don't know. You know, people dress up uh, like Klingons around the whole globe and almost every weekend somewhere in the world, there's a Star Trek conference. It's whether you watch it or not, you're very aware of its influence. And so I'd say Star Trek is pretty much the biggest show ever on television. And so here's a show that was a cult show that that wasn't going to last, that took the B. Joe and John Trimble, who are two of the lead subjects of my film, to fight for, to rally the fans, to bring back sort of the granddaddy campaign of them all. And then when CBS, 52 years later, 51 years, I think they launched it last year, decides, OK, we're going to launch a streaming service to be competitive with a Netflix or Hulu. So we need something to anchor our new service that we know devout people will pay for. It can't be something new because no one's going to pay for a bunch of new stuff. Netflix gets that. That's why Netflix bought a ton of content to get going. You know, so they say, let's go to Star Trek. So CPS actually uses the thing that, you know, is one of the great stories of fans fighting for it back in the day to to anchor a paying service. And it worked. You know, people people got CBS all access. And then, of course, they went with, you know, a, a sequel in a way or a spinoff of The Good Wife. So they're they're looking at shows that already have followings and using those to anchor people to get the service, because if you love Star Trek, there's no way you're not going to be watching weekly new Star Trek episodes if they're available to you. So I, I just find that really fascinating. I think you're right in saying that it's the biggest TV show all time because, A, I think once it became cemented, there was no argument that there would be a film element. And I'm not sure that any other huge TV show can claim that, that it's had a run of massive films also associated to the universe. And Yep. Yeah, and the amount of actual cultural impact, maybe other than Star Wars, I can't think of anything where the flow-on effects into other kinds of niche genre activity is quite so intense as Star Trek. So Absolutely. Just to stay on United We Fan just for a second because you brought it up, who else and what else will be in the show without spoiling it for people that want to actually go out and see it in, in their own territories when it's available, and I encourage them to do so. Who will be on the show as far as the stars, so to speak, and what TV shows are you focusing on? Obviously, there's a focus on Star Trek, but... Yeah, so we have sort of three main uh, storylines, and then we we still go into other campaigns, uh, definitely give other campaigns uh, some attention as well. The three main storylines, one is Star Trek, which is, I mean, a couple that to this day travels the world as the couple that saved Star Trek, B. Joe and John Trimble, um, you know, even when Star Trek Discovery did its red carpet premiere, uh, are invited out to walk the red carpet by CBS with the stars. If, if that's They've made being fans who fought to save a TV show the thing they're known for in their life. That's that's pretty incredible. Still together after all these years as well. And, and you know, they were sci-fi fans. They came by it very honestly. Sci-fi fans who were in the sci-fi convention circuit, who met Gene Roddenberry 
befriended him, ended up loving his show, and then fought for it. So their identity was very closely related. And that's a very important theme in, in my film is community and identity, that you're often fighting not just for the show, you're fighting to save the community of people that you love that show with. And often that show represents a, a part of you. Uh, we, we, we do the show Chuck, the, the finale in a footlong campaign for Chuck. And early in, in, in that campaign, the person says, you know, he was a nerd and I'm a nerd. You know, it's like there is that throughout the whole film you'll find in, in, in every way that people attach to their shows. And I also was very careful when looking for the people that I was going to feature in the film that they had very good reasons for wanting to fight for shows. We didn't really want someone to be like, well, why'd you fight for this show? Ah, I heard you get your name in the newspaper. <laughs> that's that's not very engaging, <laughs> you know. And we didn't honestly find that either, reaching out. It was actually very difficult decisions on what stayed in the film and what didn't. Uh, and we filmed more stories than even made it into the film. Uh, and uh, I would love to see those see the light of day. But so the one of the main campaigns, like I said, was Star Trek. Then we have uh, the woman who fought for Cagney and Lacey in uh, 1983, uh, Dorothy Swanson who, uh, after being a part of that letter writing campaign to save that show and that being successful, formed a viewer advocacy group called Viewers for Quality Television that was a force in the television industry for uh, all the 80s and 90s. And their campaigns saved multiple shows. Essentially, the 80s and 90s was just every campaign led back to VQT, Viewers for Quality Television. She went from being a Michigan uh, school teacher and housewife to somebody who literally would get invited into the offices of network presidents and they would sort of go over their false schedule with her, you know, like yeah. that that's pre-internet. That's the sort of power this group had. And she was paid. She, she, as she says in the film, I, I, I think I ask her, you were, you were doing this for a living. You, you were a paid fan activist and saving television shows. And she says, yeah, the good ones, you know, and you look at the list, you look at the list of shows that they saved and they had a yearly conference that all of the stars came out to all of the, all of the writers came out to all the showrunners came out to this was before any festival like before Comic-Con was, had that as part of what they did. They were doing that. They were giving awards was called the Q award out and a Seinfeld was there. Helen Hunt, Juliana Margulies, anybody who was anybody on any show, uh, Scott Bakula, who was in the film talking about Dorothy. Uh, it's really just incredible what she accomplished. Uh, and then the internet came along and that changed everything. And now you didn't need one advocacy group that was sort of an umbrella uh, organization over all of quality television, trying to keep all television, good television on the air. You could, if you liked Jericho, go on to cbs.com message boards for Jericho and meet there, you know, and that changed everything. There was really no reason for VQT to be around anymore. And Dorothy quietly retired uh, to Florida in 2000. Um, so this is uh, very excited to be able to tell Dorothy's story, because I think as you watch the film and you you see her in the early part of the film, Save Cagney and Lacey, you'll be like, oh, what a great story. And then she keeps coming back and building. And you can feel that in the audience as people watch it, like, whoa. This is this is not the story of uh, the people that save one show, which is same for B. Joe and John Trimble. You know, they save the one show and everyone else in the movie. They save the one show. This was this woman was a force. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to that, to people experiencing and getting to know 
who Dorothy Swanson is. And then the other main campaign is for person of interest. You know, we wanted a campaign that was taking place currently. And uh, in the year we went to production, we looked around. There was a few going uh, and reaching out to fans. We just really loved Kaylee Russell's fight to try and save person of interest. You know, she is uh, uh, LGBTQ and she loved the character Root and Shaw, uh, the, the character relationship between Root and Shaw on person of interest. And that's what drew her to the show. And uh, it was it's a really beautiful reason to fight and to keep people connected. And again, it's identity. It's really just she really didn't see herself reflected on network television all that much in her life. And to see on a CBS show of all things, her identity reflected was a really big thing. And that's not much different than Dorothy back in 1983, seeing strong, powerful women in Cagney and Lacey throwing perps down on the hoods of cars and not throwing perps down and saying, what's your husband like these days? You know, they were, being, they were cops, not just there to talk about the relationships in their lives. They were being cops the same way men were being cops on their cop shows. So it's, it really all comes down to identity. Yeah, those are all huge things. I'm even more excited about this now, just hearing that than what I was. So It's surprising. I think you'll be surprised by this movie. I really do. I think fans will be surprised because it does sound like and I'm sure you experience this when you talk to people about your podcast, that it sounds a little entertainment tonighty. Like, what's yours about? It's about fans who fight for TV shows. And they have an automatic, oh, I see this. You know, I, I, I totally know what, you're, you're, what vibe you're going to take. And that really isn't what this film, this film is, it's really character driven. And it's really much more, because you can't sustain, that's why Entertainment Tonight stories are only 36 seconds. You know, like you can sustain wackiest, a, a movie about TV's wackiest fans if it's a short, maybe. But that's not what this is. It's not like a movie about wacky fans. These people are not wacky at all. They they have very good reasons for doing what they're doing. And it, they're, they're very organized. And they bring these grassroots political style efforts. And they teach one another. You know, Do- B. Joe Trimble in 1967 wrote the rules of running a fan campaign for for the people writing letters for Star Trek. You could adapt those. And they've been used through for decades now. Be polite. You know, target somebody specific. Uh, I mean, these these rules are still the same. And it's it's incredible to sort of see that. And we saw that in another one of the campaigns. We, we do the Chuck cam- footlong finale campaign. We do Jericho peanut campaign. We do the Longmire social media campaign, which is fascinating that a group of people who have never even really been on the Internet or understand Twitter taught each other Twitter to fight for their beloved A&E you know, Western show that was aimed at an older demographic. And they use the most modern technology, something they really didn't get to get their show moved to another piece of modern technology in Netflix, where it had a, a great run. And then we have Veronica Mars, of course, the the uh, Kickstarter campaign, because I mean, that's the ultimate fan, fan power really right there is, here's our money, make the thing we like, you know, that's, you, you can bypass everything. If you're the showrunner and you have the IP and you have the ability to do something with it, we saw that with Mystery Science Theater 3000 even, where it's just fans, if it's not social media, they can just outright pay by the episode if they want. For all episode resources, subscribe links, and ways to support the podcast, head on over to onthebubblepodcast.com. Now, on with the show. There's a mystery around shows that have an obscure ending. Because I know yeah. that, like, to go back again to Sarah Connor, it's probably the weirdest. For me, that was the biggest cliffhanger up until that point I'd ever seen on a show. Yeah. It was literally, let's, 
let's start an entire new television show on a different timeline, but then it never happened. I don't think, and this is just my feeling, that the fan campaign would have been quite as rigorous and had lasted as long and the community still be as strong 10 years later if the show hadn't ended like that. Absolutely. No, you're a hundred. You're a hundred percent. No, you're a hundred percent right on that, and I I absolutely agree. And I, I remember that was your first episode, I believe, you did Sarah Connor Chronicles. Yeah, it was. Yeah, that's why I did that first. Yeah, uh, I love that. I, I love that it was personal, and I, it, I really do. And I uh, I can't say that any campaign I've seen for any show, it really didn't come down to how that show ended as not being a reason why the fans fought. Star Trek was a little bit different. It was really new. It was adult sci-fi, you know, and that was a whole different era of television. There weren't that many programs on television, really, at that time. So, But moving forward to a lot of these shows, a lot of these campaigns, it really was how they ended things. And those fans of Longmire, I tell you, I keep coming back to Longmire because it's so surprising to me. But again, a shootout. Somebody was shot somewhere on a hill. Nobody knows who was shot. You, you bet fans fought to find out the answer to that. And you've seen other shows, Jericho, for a third season, get comics and, and graphic novelizations to try and wrap things out. And those things stay, you know. And as networks need less and less people to sustain a show and as effects get cheaper to make, I think, I, and I know this even, that showrunners get approached you know, the showrunners of Jericho were very close in 2012, 13 to bringing Jericho back to Netflix. There were multiple conversations to bring a show back. And you're going to see because those fans are still there. You still walk through Comic-Con and there's a booth in Comic-Con for the Jericho Rangers. They're still there holding on, still talking about their show, still pushing for more. And when you need to bring subscribers over, people who aren't you know, who they're they're sustaining the channel by putting eight dollars a month down and will keep going for years and years and years. I think it's really fascinating. It's really fascinating to see how television has changed. And it's changing so fast that if this movie takes a year to get out, everything is going to change right along with it. It's just in- incredible that you're seeing Netflix go from a place that people were really, really pushing to save shows and Netflix needed subscribers to now they're making their own shows and people are fighting for things on Netflix. So it's, I love it. I mean, I, it's, it's very dynamic. The documentary United We Fan isn't on the bubble, is it? <laughs> so what I, no, I'm, I'm joking. <laughs> no, <laughs> it is definitely United We Fan. It's, it's great. It, the, the, the stars of United We Fan are the fans. It is, it is about the fans, but there are major showrunners, after we have, you know, we have Zachary Levi, we have Nichelle Nichols, you know, we have Scott Bakula. We've got some incredible showrunners as well, you know, Jason Kadams, Rob Thomas. Uh, we have everybody behind the shows and part of the shows. But you'll see it really is about them supporting what the fans did and their feelings about what the fans did and how that was, how that affected their life. And it's an incredible thing to have fans rise up when you're feeling like a failure to know that you're not in the eyes of you know thousands, tens of thousands of people when they're saying your show isn't good enough to be on the air, you know that's the feeling you have. No, regardless if you think, wow, creatively, I thought we we're onto something special here, and then you're you're going to leave the air, and then this happens. It was so easy for me to go out and get interviews because this was the greatest feeling they ever had in their professional careers when fans fought to save what they were were doing, their vision. And so it, it was a real joy to make this movie. And I hope, I honestly do hope 
that I get an opportunity to continue making this movie because I think United We Fan, we could have extended parts of every story that's in this movie and then go on to the other 50 fan campaigns that your show highlights. Every one of them deserves to have their story told. Every one of them. Exactly. That's probably a great way to finish up. I completely agree. Michael, did you just want to tell us what's the best place for people to find the documentary when it comes out? And this show is mostly consumed in North America, so I guess we'll start there. And then what's the plan for that to be global? Is it iTunes uh, through Apple or is there another platform you're looking at in the future? We're just starting to get the film out. It was made uh, independently here in Canada. It does have in Canada, it does have a, a, a pay TV network will be it's going to air it. Uh, we're also going to have theatrical likely this fall. But as far as the rest of the world, we have our world premiere is just next week at a very big, very, very big documentary festival called the Hot Docs Documentary Festival. And a lot of people are circling. We're already sold out. We're sold out in advance, which is fantastic. Thank you. And now it's about how do we get it out to the rest of the world? And we certainly know there's going to be a lot of interest. Uh, and obviously it, it will be streaming at some point, but it'll be traveling, I would imagine, the festival circuit for quite some time. And maybe even the sort of the the con circuit, the convention Comic-Con circuits uh, that are out there, because I think that that's where a, a really core group of our audience is. And I, I, I want to be able to experience showing this to audiences before before it goes to streaming, before uh, I you know, people are consuming it by themselves like they consume television, you know, in their homes. So uh, I'm going to to be with this film, uh, hopefully for the next six months to a year, going to festivals with it. And then it'll it'll be around everywhere for people to see. Oh, and so if they're looking for news on, on please follow it at United We Fan Doc on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter and you can hear all about where it's going to be next and how it's going to come out. And uh, it's, I think it's going to have a very uh, exciting and su- successful run the, in, in the coming months. Excellent. And that's at unitedwefan.doc on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. I think I've followed it in all places. It's slightly different content going to some of those. So that's excellent. And I guess I'll just finish up with a bit of a – just a quick question. And this is maybe my – request of michael if you happen to know anywhere that i can find information on the show banshee it's almost like there's this shroud of secrecy about the banshee fan campaign and i can't penetrate it on the internet for all episode resources subscriber links and ways to support the podcast don't forget to check out on the bubble thanks and talk to you soon